good morning, everybody. Welcome to First Free Church. Thank you for being here today. I hope some of you got a chance to check out the tabernacle down in Fusion earlier. I heard there was a very long line to see that, uh, but that's really cool. Glad that they were able to put that together, and, and hopefully many of you got to see it already. We are going to dive into our message for today in Acts chapter 15, so if you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open that to Acts 15. We'll, we'll spend a little bit of time in 14, but we'll quickly move into 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can go to efree.org slash Bible on whatever device you have, and that will take you right to our passage for today. I hope you're enjoying summer. We've been having a lot of fun. We went camping a week ago with a bunch of families, and that was a blast, and we've been enjoying just the, the kids being home from school, and at our house, on any given day, you're going to have a lot of kids just roaming the neighborhood, looking for whichever house has activities and or food, and so we have you know, certain bins that are like the kids' snack bins that they know they can come in and just grab items. So there's a lot of kids that hang out at our place all the time. Pretty much every day this summer, there'll be kids over. And a couple weeks ago, they were out in the backyard, bounced on the trampoline, eating some cotton candy, because we've got a cotton candy machine, and just having a good old time. And the conversation came about what they were looking forward to for the next year. And there were two fifth graders in the group. And those two fifth graders said what they were looking forward to the most about the next school year and the next school they were going to, middle school, really shocked me. Actually, it appalled me uh, why they were looking forward to it so much. The reason that they gave was one word, freedom. And I thought, that is not the word I want to hear used to describe a school. (laughs) School is where you're supposed to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, and maybe two other things. I do not want you having freedom at your school. Freedom is the last thing I want you to experience at your school with all your friends and only one person to try to keep you in control. But that's what they were most excited about. And freedom is something that all of us can relate to and all of us desire on a certain level. When you have constraints in your life, when you have a box built around you, it can feel stifling. And all you want to do is break free of that. Now, it's true that sometimes having constraints in life gives you a feeling of safety. But in many cases and in many ways, we crave and desire freedom. For instance, if you've ever taken out a mortgage on a home, like a 30-year mortgage, and then maybe... You put a little extra down every month on that payment so that you end up paying it off in 15 years. At the end of that 15 years, when you don't have a mortgage payment anymore, you feel freedom. And it feels amazing, right? And suddenly you have freedom not only from the obligation of paying that monthly mortgage payment, but now you have the freedom to do something different with the money that you would have spent otherwise. And so there's incredible freedom that comes from not having that anymore. The reason I'm bringing this up is because this is one way to think about the old and new covenants in the Bible. We don't talk about covenants a lot, but the Bible is full of covenantal language. And really the way that God relates to you and I is through covenant, whether you realize it or not. And the Bible is is full of these covenants. Covenants are basically contracts between God and his people. At different times, in different ways, some were very specific, some were very general. There was the Noahic covenant, which was the covenant God's promise that he would never again flood the earth. There was the Abrahamic covenant about God providing a a nation with many descendants for Abraham and then giving them land. There was the Davidic covenant about the fact that one of David's descendants would reign forever and be a king forever. And so there were these covenants. Then, of course, there was the most famous and prominent one, the Mosaic covenant, which was God's covenant between him and the people of Israel given through Moses that came with certain promises from God and certain obligations for the people, requirements that they had to follow, which is called the law of Moses. And these covenants form the basis for our relationship with God. What can we expect from him and what does he expect from us? And so that covenantal relationship is woven throughout history. And the Bible is actually a story of all the ways that God has interacted with people through covenants. And everything can kind of be tied back to that. We don't often think of it that way, but that's what it is. And in our passage today in Acts chapter 15, we are going to run smack dab into a covenantal change issue. A changeover from the old covenant to the new covenant and the problems that that caused for them that were somewhat unique to their time, but also have some practical relevant application for us and maybe maybe some of us more than others. So I want to talk about covenants today and I want us to dive into 
Acts chapter 15 in just a minute. But before I do, I want us to understand that God had said from long ago that the Mosaic covenant would only be temporary. He said this through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so God had always indicated that, yes, there were these older covenants, the Mosaic one in particular that was with this whole people of Israel, but a new covenant was coming. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled the old covenants. He fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He also fulfilled the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants because the Abrahamic covenant was about a multitude of descendants. And Jesus made a way for all these millions of spiritual descendants to be grafted into Abraham's family. Paul talks about that. He fulfilled the Davidic covenant because the Davidic covenant was about having an everlasting ruler from the line of David, which is what Jesus is. And of course, he fulfilled the Mosaic covenant by being the sacrifice for sins that the Mosaic covenant pointed to the need for and demonstrated our need for. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but that no human could actually provide until Jesus came along. And so Jesus comes along and he fulfills these older covenants while bringing a new one, which means that the requirements of the old covenants on people are no longer binding, they're no longer there, but it takes a lot to get used to that. If you've grown up with certain traditions in your family or traditions in, in the church that you grew up in or in your culture, and then all of a sudden you are confronted with with having to change those or someone not wanting to abide by those or do those with you, it can be a very jarring and shocking thing. And for some of us, we grew up with traditions such that they're so ingrained into us that it's almost hard to distinguish what's tradition and what's biblical. What's tradition and what are we actually required to do by God? And this is the problem that the Jewish believers faced in Acts chapter 15. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's going to be a very, a very teachy, covenant-focused message, but one that I think is it's important to understand in order for us to understand our text for today, and one that will have some practical application for us. Maybe different for you than, than for me, because there's a broad array of things we can take this in. And so I'm going to pray for us right now, and I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me, and ask God to speak to you. Ask him to show you where in this text is something that you need to learn to better understand him or better understand how he wants you to live. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative to have your word. Our text for today written down some 2,000 years ago by Luke so that we could understand this transition a little bit better and understand how you're working in the world with people. Lord, I know that in many cases, Christians have confused and misunderstood these aspects of covenant relationship with you, and it's led to all sorts of problems. And it's led to communication on our part that has left other people confused and have, has led other people to think that we're being hypocritical or that our, that our faith doesn't make sense, that our scriptures don't make sense. And really, it just boils down to a lack of, of studying and understanding what you actually say in your word. So God, I pray that today, you would help us to have a deeper and a richer understanding of it and to see that what you're doing in the world, it makes sense. It is actually fairly clear for those who will take the time to look at it and help us to live it out in our life, Lord. Help, help us to live out this new covenant of freedom that we have with you. And in your name we pray, amen. So Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be, but we're gonna start in Acts 14 because that's where we left off last week with John preaching in verse 21 of chapter 14, we're going to kind of get the tail end of this missionary journey, the first for Paul and Barnabas. Again, Acts 14, verse 21, you can follow along in your Bible or read along at efree.org slash Bible. We've got some very long passages we're going to go through today, so we're not going to put all of those on the screen for you. But that's not a bad thing. It's good to follow along in your Bible. Verse 21, Acts 14. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Then they traveled back through Pisidia to Pamphylia. They preached the word in Perga, then went down to Italia. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God to do the work they had now completed. Upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. So Paul and Barnabas are wrapping up their missionary journey. They kind of do this victory lap back through all the places they went before and give them encouragement before sailing back to Antioch of Syria this time, where they started out on their journey two years ago. And they give this big report to the church and everybody loves it. And then they stay there for a long time. And while they're there, something big happens. Something controversial happens. Some outsiders come in and start trying to teach the believers in Antioch. And here's what happens in chapter 15. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, there are a few different ways we can view the law of Moses. One way we could view the law is that it's fulfilled and it's not required anymore. It's not a binding contract for us today. It was for the people of Israel back then. It is no longer now that Jesus has come. Another way we can view the law of Moses and the Mosaic Covenant is that it is fulfilled and parts of it are binding and parts of it are not. So we can try to go through and carve a line through it and say, these are the parts that were ceremonial in nature. We don't have to follow those. These are the parts that are moral in nature. We do have to follow those. But then you have to kind of go through and pick and choose which one is just ceremonial or or ritualistic and which one is moral that we still need to follow. You could also say, with regard to the law of Moses, that you actually do need to follow the whole thing today. The festivals, the rituals, maybe not the animal sacrifices because the temple's not available for that right now, but everything else in it, you do need to follow today. Not necessarily to be saved, but it is still something God wants you to follow. And there are Christians today, in fact, it's been a growing view the last few years, that believe in Jesus, but also believe God still wants you to follow the the rituals and regulations and ceremonies and everything of the old Mosaic covenant. And the other way you could look at this, which is not as common today, is that not only um, is it still required for you, but it's actually required for salvation. Like you can't actually be right with God. You can't actually spend eternity with him unless you do your best to follow the Mosaic laws. And the old covenant. So you have these four different main ways of looking at the Mosaic law. And and what's happened here is that some men from Judea, so these are Jewish people who are not necessarily believers in Jesus, they have come in to say to the Christians in Antioch, hey, you better make sure if you want to be right with God, and they're probably like, this Jesus guy is okay, but you better make sure you're also following the law of Moses. And the first part of that is to be circumcised. That's the first step in becoming Jewish. You have to be circumcised, and then you follow the rest of the law of Moses. So that's the controversy that's brewing here in Antioch, and it caused a tremendous amount of confusion. You've got all these people now wondering, are they right? The last time we got messengers from the Judea region and and Jerusalem in particular, they told us about Jesus, but now here's some new messengers that are saying, oh, you also have to follow this. Do do we need to? We don't know. So in verse 2, we see that Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But here's where it gets interesting. Then some of the believers, so these are followers of Jesus, people of faith, the Greek says, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, that's what they were part of before, and they still kind of maintained that as Christians, stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So here we are again. You see circumcision is the first part of that. And then it's follow the law of Moses after that. That's the whole thing here. 
I want you to notice that this group here in Jerusalem is different than the group that came into Antioch. The group that came into Antioch said, if you want to be saved, you have to be circumcised, and then by implication, follow the rest of the law of Moses. The group that is here are actually believers in Jesus. They are not necessarily saying that you have to follow the law of Moses to be saved, but they are saying you should still be required to follow it. It's like this is still something God wants you to do, even if it's not essential for your salvation. And I got to be honest with you, I can empathize with that. Because if you've grown up believing something, some regulation, some rule, some code of conduct, some way of thinking, some tradition that you've held on to for years or, or decades, and all of a sudden you are seeing that that thing that you hold so dear is not held as dear by other people who you think should, that can really hit you. That can hit hard. Why don't they value my tradition the same way I value my tradition? Why don't they value the Mosaic law the same way I value the Mosaic law? This is so important to me. It's been ingrained into my thinking, practically brainwashed, not, not necessarily even in a bad way, but it's just it's such a part of my psyche because ever since I was a kid, every Sabbath I heard these regulations read and my, my parents were careful to follow them and I have been careful to follow them and now here are these newcomers coming in and they don't have to follow these? These are so important to me. These are, these are sacred. These are sacred rules that now we're just supposed to disregard. Can't you empathize? with them about this. This is the struggle that they're facing. And the Jews that went to Antioch say you have to be sa- you have to follow the Mosaic law to be saved. The Jews here in Jerusalem that are part of the church are saying maybe not to be saved, but you do have to follow them. So what is the answer here? In verse 6, we read, "So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue." We got a problem in Antioch. We got a problem in Jerusalem. It's probably going to be or already is a problem elsewhere. We need to meet and resolve this. And the church in Jerusalem was the mother church. This is where most of the apostles were gathered. This is where most of the spiritual knowledge was located and wisdom was located. So this is the church that's going to make a decision and then send this information out for the others to learn from. And as a part of this council, where the apostles and the elders gather together, they're going to hear from many different voices who are going to share their opinion and views. Certainly, some of those are going to be that of the Christians of the Pharisee sect, saying that Christians still need to follow the law of Moses. But we're also going to hear from Peter. We're going to hear from Paul. We're going to hear from Barnabas. We're going to hear from James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of this church in Jerusalem at the end. And before we get into that, I need you to know a little something about Peter's history with this issue. Because Peter has already been to Antioch at this point, and he has already had a little run-in and even a personal blunder dealing with this exact issue in Antioch. And the only reason we know that is because Paul tells us about it in Galatians. So we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2 for a minute here to get a little history on Peter before we hear his thoughts in Jerusalem on this issue. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. But when Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul writing, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. It sounds pretty serious. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, remember James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, The Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So this guy who's so close to Paul, he, he got in on it too. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded these Jewish laws, so he didn't follow the Mosaic law anymore, Peter didn't, and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? So now there's Paul acknowledging the Mosaic law at this point. It's Peter, you no longer follow it. Now it's tradition. And you're trying to force that on other people. And and when they, by implication, and when they won't become circumcised, when they won't follow the law of Moses because of the peer pressure of these other people that have come into town and visited friends of James, you are now withdrawing from the Gentile believers and breaking fellowship with them over this. Have you ever had a good friend that suddenly started giving you the cold shoulder and you didn't know why? And it's just so awkward. And so the Gentile believers are here in Antioch. And every time they invite Peter over for dinner, he's busy. Really? Every time? 
And Peter's like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't make it that night. And they're like, well, what about the next night? No, nah, I'm busy then too. Well, what about the next week? No, I can't, I can't make it then either. And they just, he just keeps blowing them off. And then Barnabas starts doing it because they talk. And the other believers see what they're doing. And they're like, well, maybe we should do that too because Peter and Barnabas, I mean, they're big guys. This is what they're doing. And so they all follow suit until a whole bunch of these Christians, Jewish Christians, have broken fellowship with Gentile believers. And Paul had enough. And he confronted them over this issue. Now, we don't learn in Galatians what the result of that confrontation was. Paul is using it as an example at that point. We're just left to assume that hopefully the confrontation went well and everyone did the right thing after that. But we actually do get to see how Peter thinks back in Acts 15. So go go back to Acts 15 with me. A little later in the timeline now. And Peter's back in Jerusalem. He's about to speak before this group of apostles and elders on this very issue of do we need to require the law of Moses and circumcision for Christians today? And here's what happens. Verse seven, at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, isn't that great? Now that you know Peter's history and how he was a hypocrite about this and struggled with this issue himself for the sake of appearances, for him to stand up and make this claim right in front of James, right in front of James' friends that that were an issue for him in Antioch about the fact that, that these believers are being saved by faith and God is not requiring them to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses to be a part of his family. Well, now we know what Peter thinks and we actually already have a good idea what Paul and Barnabas think. Luke told us that before. They argued vehemently against this. So Luke doesn't give us a lot of detail about what they shared at this gathering. Instead, he just says, everyone listened quietly. This is verse 12. As Barnabas and Paul told them about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, why did they do this? Why didn't they get up and give some theological defense for their view? They just shared stories. Well, here's why. Peter was saying, hey, we have all seen how God has accepted the Gentiles and given them the Holy Spirit without requiring this law of Moses stuff. Now, Paul and Barnabas get up and say, let us share some stories with you that demonstrate how God has accepted the Gentiles in miraculous ways, signs and wonders. And this is one of the reasons why we see signs and wonders with greater prevalence in the book of Acts and at this time of transition from old to new covenant. Because it was not only a sign for the unbelievers to see, oh, wow, this God's different than those pagan gods. It's also a sign for the Jewish people to be able to see and verify, oh, wow, God is really in this new thing. He's actually at work here. Without the signs and wonders that occurred during the early church, the Jewish people could not have known, yes, this is legit. God is really in this. He really is doing a new thing outside of the Mosaic Covenant that is so steeped into our culture and into our psyche. And so that's why these stories of the signs and the wonders are so important. So Peter shares and Paul shares and Barnabas shares. And the last one we get to hear from is James. James, the brother of Jesus. James is effectively what we would call the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Only in the next couple hundred years after this, they would use the term bishop. I'm not suggesting we bring that back, but a bishop is basically a senior pastor of a church. And then in the, in the structure of the New Testament church, you had bishops like James was the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, Titus in Crete, Timothy in Ephesus. They were all referred to as the, the bishops or the senior elders of those places. And then under them, you'd have other elders that were in the church in the home groups and all of these together made up a regional church. You had churches in Philadelphia and Laodicea and Crete and Ephesus and Jerusalem that were all large churches, 1,000 to 3,000 people. And they were regional churches, everybody part of the same church, but then they had different home groups that were split up by location and elders were appointed in those different places. And when a big decision needed to be made, the elders would all gather together like we see here and they would talk about it together. And at the end of this discourse, what's gonna happen is James, as the, the senior elder, the bishop of the church, he's going to get up and kind of make the final decision 
about, okay, we've heard all this testimony, now what are we going to do next? So James sits there quietly, waits, hears everything, and then he makes the decision at the end. And by the way, we know from external sources, this is just interesting, that when James was ready to step back from being the bishop or the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the man they chose to replace him as bishop was Simeon, the cousin of Jesus. And so there was a cousin of Jesus that we know almost nothing, well, we know nothing about from the Bible, but from external sources, we know that he was considered to be a strong man of faith and understood Jesus' teachings well, and he became the next bishop of the church in Jerusalem. But here's James in verse 13. When they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from, from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. What is he saying here? He is saying that his conclusion is we cannot apply the law of Moses or require it on these people. It is not a binding contract on them. And to demand that they follow the law of Moses and circumcision and all the other things that come with that would be a heavy burden for them. It would be difficult. Even if we were to say, well, it's not required for you, but it's still a good thing to do so that you can get along with other Jewish believers. He's like, no, that is too heavy a burden. Even we have not been able to bear that burden. Now, there were other things that were discussed in this meeting. And we learn this from the next few verses because James is gonna make some concessions. He's gonna give a little compromise and say there are some requirements that we should send to them, not because they're new covenant requirements, but because they're causing friction in the body of Christ and these are not heavy burdens for them to bear. So here are a few of the issues that they dealt with and we'll read the passage in just a minute. They dealt with issues like food. The Jewish laws were full of dietary restrictions. What can you eat? What can't you eat? You can't eat shellfish. You can't eat bacon bacon. You can't eat bacon. You can't wear certain types of clothing. You can't, and, and that's not one they're going to deal with, but you can't eat meat that's been strangled. You can't consume blood. Everything has to be thoroughly cooked. But in the Gentile community, this was all normal stuff. They had no problem with eating things that the Jewish people wouldn't want to eat, even meat that was offered to idols. So meat that was offered to idols would be sold for a discount in the marketplace, and the Gentiles are like, sweet, discounted meat. And the Jewish people are like, are you kidding me? That's associated with idol worship. We can't have anything to do with that. And so if, if the Gentile believer wants to be nice and invite a Jewish believer over for dinner, they've got this problem because the food that they're serving may violate the conscience of the Jewish believer. And so James is going to give this guideline, this instruction to them in verse 20. Instead, he says, we should write them and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols. So, so don't do that from sexual immorality, that was a big problem in Antioch at the time, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. Four, these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Now, what is James saying? Is he saying, well, there are certain laws of Moses they should follow and certain laws they shouldn't? No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that for the sake of unity and fellowship in the church, with these Jewish believers that grew up this way and these Gentile believers that grew up this way, there are some concessions that we need to make for unity and fellowship. Now, the sexual immorality one is one that Jesus talks about. Sexual immorality is wrong regardless. But the other three are elements of the law of Moses that are not required under the new covenant. In fact, Paul makes that expressly clear when he talks about the fact that there's no food that's unclean anymore. There's nothing that's off, off limits and it's something that God made and, and we can enjoy it technically. But here, James is saying, look, because of the circumstance that you are in, that may be a freedom that you have, but you need to give that freedom up for the sake of fellowship with your fellow believers, even the, the ones that are Jewish. And so they give them these instructions as a, on the basis of wisdom, not on the basis of covenant requirement to say, here's what you should do for now, given this circumstance. And it's wise advice that James gives. Now, the natural question that you may have at this point is, so what? Nice history lesson. What does it mean for me right now? We're talking old covenant, we're talking new covenant, all this covenantal language. Does this actually impact my life today? 
And I think that it does. I think it actually impacts our life more than we realize, especially because we don't use covenantal language a lot. And yet our entire relationship with God is based on covenant. It is based on a new covenant with Jesus. So understanding the old covenant that got us here and the new covenant that we're in now is actually a really valuable thing. And I wanna give you a few points to drive that home. Number one, the old covenant was a temporary guide pointing to a better sacrifice and a new covenant. We read that from Jeremiah, that there was something new that was coming. It would be replaced one day. In fact, we talked a couple weeks ago about how the old covenant wasn't even really about all the rituals and the, the ceremonies. It was really about faith, just like the new covenant, but there was a different methodology around that and different application of that. So the old covenant was a temporary guide. It was never meant to be a permanent thing. Number two, the new covenant has fulfilled and replaced the old covenant. The new covenant of Jesus has fulfilled and replaced the old covenant. And this one is often a struggle for people uh, because in Christian circles, we have confused the changeover that happened from the old to new covenants. We've confused it partly because there are parts of the old covenant that we really like to hold on to. And, and sometimes we treat those as authoritative and binding for us. And it gets confusing because it's like, well, which part do we follow? Which part do we not follow? And so we get confused sometimes in Christian circles by covenantal language because we, we struggle with the same thing that they struggle with in Acts 15. This transition from old to new covenant. What does that mean for us now? And so what I want to do is give you a few verses of scripture that help us to understand this replacement that happens, the new covenant for the old covenant. Romans chapter 6. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law. That's the Mosaic law. That's the old covenant, but under grace. Romans 7, but now we have been released from the law. That's the Mosaic law. For we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law. That's the Mosaic law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Romans 10, 4, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law, Mosaic law, was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Galatians 3, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So Christ truly has, has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. Not just slavery to sin, but slavery to the Mosaic law. And then in 5.18, but when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. In Colossians 2, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. All of that is very specifically targeted at the law of Moses. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. And so the Bible teaches very plainly that the old covenant has been replaced by the new covenant. Now, does that mean that we can just throw the old covenant out and forget about it? Not at all. Because the old covenant is now a valuable teacher of history and of God's plan. That's number three. The old covenant is a valuable teacher of history and of God's plan. It's, it's worth studying. It's worth learning about. It shows us how he was at work in the world. It shows us some of the, the way that he thinks and how he directed people in the past. Just because it's not binding on us today doesn't mean it's not useful or valuable for us today. And I know this is a, a tough thing for some Christians to accept, just like those early Jewish believers, because they think, well, there are parts of that law that I want to keep. There, there are things in there that I, that I really like. And I know last time I preached on this, which was last year, there was a lot of disagreement afterward and conversation from people thinking, well, I'm not sure I agree with that, because there are parts of that that are, that are good that I want to hold on to. And I understand that. Well, I'll get to that in just a minute here. But based on those verses that we just read, all in the New Testament, talking about the old law and how it's no longer binding on us, I think that we can confidently say, number four, none of the old covenant is binding on believers today. None of the old covenant is binding on believers today. Not the rituals, not the sacrifices, not the festivals, not the feasts, not even the Sabbath days. And that is abundantly clear in Paul's writings, Romans and Galatians and Colossians and 1 Corinthians. What that means for us is that we today should not point to old covenant laws 
as our moral grounding for doing or not doing a thing. We need to be careful when we're talking with other people not to say, the Bible says you shouldn't do that and point to a passage in Leviticus. And here's why. If that person is smart, they're gonna take the Bible from you, go forward one verse and say, do you eat bacon? They're gonna flip over one chapter and say, let me see the tag of your clothes. Do you have polyester and cotton? Because that's a violation. Do you see the problem? There's a hypocrisy on par with the hypocrisy of Peter and Barnabas and the other believers in Antioch. When we try to point to old covenant regulations as our rationale for doing things today, because that covenant is not binding. And the only way you can pull that off is if you cherry pick parts of it and say, and carve it down the middle and say, well, this is the part we're going to follow. And this is the part we're not going to follow. And we don't have to do that. That's not how God set any of this up. And I, I believe Paul makes that abundantly clear. The old covenant is not binding on us today. It's not an authoritative covenant. It's not a contract that we have to follow today. And if you understand the covenants, you realize you, you don't actually need it. You don't need to point to the old covenant for your moral laws today. We have something better than that now. The way to think about this is like a contract. That's what it is. And I've used this illustration before, but it's the best one I can think of, so I'll use it again. Jenny and I used to have rental properties, and we had a standard contract that we would use for tenants that would lease from us. And that standard contract had to be adapted every time we had new tenants. Uh, first of all, just because we had to change the names of whatever the new tenants were. So right there, there's a little change that's made to the contract. But then often there are other little tweaks too. Uh, there's something unique to their situation with their pets or their kids or lawn care or something like that. And so there's a little change that happens and maybe 5% of the contract is different. If we ever have to take one of those tenants to court, can we bring with us the contract of previous tenants and use that as evidence of what they're supposed to follow? No, because that is not a contract with the current tenants. Even if 95% of the material is the same as the contract they signed, they're two different contracts. They may be based on the same template, but they're actually two different contracts, even though there's a lot of overlap between them. This is how to think about the old and new covenants. See, God has a moral law. God has his ideal perfection for what we should do and what we shouldn't do, the way he designed this universe to work. We'll call that God's law. And then there's an application of God's law in the Mosaic Covenant, an application that was specific to that people in that time that said, here are the regulations you are supposed to follow, adapted from God's law, but applicable to where you are at right now. And it includes some laws that, that aren't relevant to us today. In fact, it includes some allowances that today we find uh, very offensive or inappropriate, but in that culture and in that day, they were actually a big improvement compared to what the rest of the culture looked like. That was the old covenant. And then Jesus comes along and he brings with him a new covenant, a new application of God's law. It's based on the same template. God's law has not changed, but there was an application of it in the Mosaic covenant and there's an application of it in the new covenant that comes from Jesus. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians. He said, when I am with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law. That's the Mosaic law. So I can bring them to Christ. What is he saying? That's not binding on me anymore. I'm not under that old contract anymore. But he says, I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. There's God's law. There's the Mosaic law. There's the law of Christ. God's law is the template that supersedes everything. The Mosaic law is an application of that for a certain time and a certain people. Now that is fulfilled, and the new covenant is the new contract that we are under, which, by the way, is still not a perfect reflection of God's law. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said that God hates divorce. God's law, God's ideal perfection is nobody ever gets divorced. It doesn't happen. But what did Jesus say? Moses made allowances for divorce because you're in a fallen world and because you have hard hearts and because you're sinful people. And there are times where actually divorce is necessary just given the brokenness of our world. And so Moses in the Mosaic covenant gave allowances for that. And guess what Jesus did too? In the new covenant, Jesus gives times where it's okay to get divorced, even though he also says God doesn't want it at all. Why? Because we live in a broken world. And so there needs to be an application of that law that makes sense for us today. One day we will truly see what it's like to live under God's pure law when there's no brokenness and no sin. We don't need to point back to the old covenant because 
God has given us a new covenant through Jesus that we are to live by today. And here's the interesting thing. The new covenant has every principle God wanted, sometimes stronger. The new covenant has every principle. If God is, if God is the sovereign big God that we say he is, and he's given us this new covenant, you think he included everything we needed in that? Absolutely. We don't need to look back to the old covenant for our moral instruction today because the new covenant has everything that's needed and often stronger. Jesus himself said, you've heard it said that you shouldn't commit adultery. I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. What did he do? He raised the bar on what it meant to commit adultery. It's not just your actions. It's your thoughts. It's your heart. It's lost in your heart. He said, you've heard that it's wrong to murder someone. Well, I say to you, if you hate your brother in your heart, that's the same as murder. He raised the bar. It's not just about your actions. It's your motivations. It's your heart. And the new covenant you'll find throughout the New Testament has everything God wanted to carry forward from the same principles that were applied in the old covenant. We do not follow thou shalt not murder or thou shalt not steal because it's in the old covenant. We follow it because it's part of the new covenant and it also happened to be in the old covenant. And unless we can get those things straight, we will continue to convince the world that we are hypocritical about our own scriptures. That's why this actually matters. Now, the last thing we see in Acts chapter 15 is James giving this really wise final instruction to the church in Antioch and telling them that even though the law of Moses is not binding and the circumcision thing doesn't need to be followed, there are some things that would be good for them to follow. And that leads me to the last point. Freedom from the old covenant does not mean the freedom to carelessly offend others. See, this is what they were wrestling with. It wasn't just about circumcision. It was about the law of Moses and all these other things and, and food and dietary restrictions, all of this. There, were, there was lots of friction in the church because of these different backgrounds and they were trying to figure out how do we get along? Okay, the law of Moses isn't binding anymore. Okay, they don't have to be circumcised, but, but how do we still get along with each other? And James comes up with this great compromise for them and says, hey, follow these four things. It's gonna help you all to get along. And Jewish people, you're gonna have to realize that they don't have to get circumcised. And all the Gentile adults are like, yes. And Gentile believers, you are going to have to make some concessions here. Not because you have to to be saved. Not because it's even a requirement of the new covenant. But for the sake of fellowship and unity in the church, can you just not buy the meat that's offered to idols? Don't eat meat that's strangled and don't consume blood. Can you just, can you make those concessions so you can all get along? And that's what James offers to us the freedom that you have under the new covenant, which praise God for that. Can you imagine if today we had to follow all the requirements of the old covenant? As the apostles said, even, even they and their ancestors couldn't follow it. But that freedom does not give us the freedom to carelessly offend others. So I want to close with these words from Paul in Romans. In Romans 14, Paul gives us a, a beautiful picture of this whole situation and what this means from both sides. And he says this in verse one, accept other believers who are weak in the faith, and don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything, but another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't, and those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. Yes, each of us will give a personal account to God, so let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in such a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. Can't get more clear than that. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person, it is wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, you are not acting in love if you eat it. The implication is if you eat it in front of them. Don't let your eating ruin someone for whom Christ died. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. For you're not following your convictions. If you do anything you believe is not right, you are sinning. You know, because you and I didn't grow up in ancient Israel, it's hard for us to appreciate the freedom that we have from the old covenant because we never experienced life under those rules. A, a covenant that we have now, which is so much better and freer and so much more complete 
because we now look back to the sacrifice of Jesus, which gives us this freedom covenant. But we have to recognize that it does not give us the freedom to do whatever we want. It gives us freedom in a lot of ways and freedom from the regulations and freedom from the power of sin in our lives and freedom from the consequences of sin. But it doesn't give us the freedom to carelessly offend each other over different convictions that we may have. And so we need to remember to use that new covenant freedom well and wisely, just as James gave us an example of. So my encouragement to you as we close today is to be thankful that you are under the new covenant. Be thankful and praise God for the freedoms that you have and be intentional about using all the time you save by not having to do the sacrifices and the festivals and the, all of the religious requirements of the old covenant. Be intentional about using that to serve God. He hasn't given you freedom so that you can watch Netflix. He's given you freedom so that you can serve him and others. So let's all be intentional in doing that. We're gonna have the Lord's Supper now, so I'm gonna pray for us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, now we remember the sacrifice that you made through your son Jesus so that we could have this new covenant, Lord. And what an incredible blessing it is to not have the regulations of the old covenant, to have the freedom that we experience now. And we know that, Lord, you instituted two things for us as a part of your new covenant, two, two rituals for us to remember. One is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper. And you did this so that we would remember the sacrifice that you made, God. I pray that that would, that would hit us heavy right now just to understand how you suffered and died to fulfill the requirements of the law, to fulfill the old covenant and to bring us something new and then help us to live in that freedom in a way that honors and glorifies you and respects one another. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we are going to take communion now. And if you are new with us, I just wanna explain how we do it here. We're gonna pass these trays through the rows. There are two cups that you'll take a stack up out of. The bottom cup has the bread, the top cup has the juice, but we'll take the bread first, so you'll wanna separate the two. If you need a gluten-free wafer, it's available in the middle of the tray. If you're joining us online right now, you can go ahead and pause the video and uh, take a moment to gather the elements so that you can participate with us. If you're not a believer, I encourage you to just let the tray pass you by. This is for those who have committed their life to Jesus. And as we distribute the elements, here's my encouragement to you. Take a moment and pray and thank God for the freedom that you have under the new covenant, the freedom from sin, the freedom from the power of sin in your life, the consequences of sin, the freedom from the regulations of the old covenant. Thank God that you were born when you were born so that you get to experience the new covenant. But then ask God if there is a way that he wants you to live that out that you're not currently doing. Let's take a few moments as we distribute the elements, think and pray, and then we'll come back together.
looks like everyone has been served. And so we are gonna start with the bread and I'm gonna read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul writing. He says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've been talking about the new covenant today and this passage is gonna mention it here. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice for us. We thank you for that new contract, that agreement, that new covenant that we get to enjoy, Lord. I pray that today we'll understand it a little bit better, understand our relationship with you a little better. We know that you will always live up to the terms of your contract. You are gracious, you are merciful, you are forgiving for those who believe in the death of your son. Lord, I pray that you would give us the boldness and the wisdom to live up to the obligations that that covenant places on us. Lord, that we would be people who love you and people who love others and all of the other instructions that flow from those two. In your name we pray, amen.